From Schwartz Media, I'm Elizabeth Kulas. This is 7am. One of the terrible facts about the day James Todd killed Eurydice Dixon is that for him, it was almost an ordinary day. Sarah Krasnerstein on a crime that made the country pause and ask how these things can happen. This is part one of a two-part episode, a warning that this episode contains detailed descriptions of sexual assault and pornography. Her terrible details of the events leading up to the brutal rape and murder of 22-year-old Eurydice Dixon. James Todd in court today. He's pled guilty to the rape and murder. And we heard from the prosecution today of the, uh, the 54 minutes from the CBD of Melbourne to Melbourne's inner north where this shocking crime was committed. So, Sarah, you've been reporting this story since June last year. You were in the Melbourne Magistrates Court the first day that James Todd appeared. Do you remember your first thought as he came out? Yeah, it was that he was very, very young. That was the first thing I wrote um, on the story in my notebook. That was very early on. It was about uh, 24 hours after Eurydice Dixon's body had been found in Princess Park. And we didn't really know much about who had done it or the circumstances of that death. Sarah Krasnerstein is a writer and an expert in sentencing law. She wrote about this case in the latest issue of The Monthly. So when he came out, he looked like a big kid. And he uh, was kind of large and hulking. He still had baby fat on his face. He was very quiet and he was very inward. He sat there for most of the hearing with his eyes shut. So in terms of what your expectations are and the reality... There was that mismatch there, which, you know, makes it in some ways even even more scary and destabilizing. He was looking only when he had to at the magistrate very briefly and kind of sideways. And then he would go back to having his eyes shut. So I've got notes in my notebook, you know, 15 minutes in, eyes still shut. 25 minutes in, eyes still shut. 35 minutes, eyes shut. And... In some ways, that strikes you as quite rude, but it was, to me, a a large sign of kind of of fear. What took you to the court that morning? So Princess Park, for me, has figured largely in my life. I mean, I went to uni uh, at Melbourne, around the corner, and in many ways, that was my backyard. And so there was kind of the proximity of where she was found, but mostly it was her age that such a young woman had been found murdered in a public space. And so I had the ability on that day to go in and see this offender who had turned himself in very soon after the crime was committed. So I went and saw, I wanted to see what it was. What was the story there? Take me back to the beginning of the day that James Todd committed the crime that would bring him to this courtroom. So the most startling thing about it, and I think the scariest thing about it, is that it's a perfectly normal day for him. He was finishing a hospitality course that year, and he had class, and he went into the city with some mates, and they bought some alcohol. They hung out in the park. 
Uh, it was a Wednesday night, but I guess, you know, for them, it, it felt like a Saturday night in terms of what they were doing. They, you know, walk around, they're hanging out, they decide to go home, 8.30, 9 o'clock, and they catch a train that's headed towards Broadmeadows in Melbourne's outer western suburbs, which is where Todd lives. He lives in a housing commission with his parents, both his mother and father, and two brothers. He's got an older brother and a younger brother. One of the experts that the defense will call at his sentencing hearing is Dr. David Thomas, and he conducts Todd's psychiatric assessment. He's a consultant psychiatrist with the Victorian Institute for Forensic Mental Health, and he said that Todd's home was the most extreme example of squalor and neglect that he'd seen in 18 years of practice. So what he described was these three boys living with their parents and various pets in conditions where the kitchen had collapsed because the floor had rotted under it. Any cooking that happened was done on a hot plate next to the toilet, which was blocked. And you couldn't tell because of the level of rubbish in each room whether it was inhabited or, or not. So food waste kind of lay where it fell, rubbish lay where it fell, and it had been that way for a very long time. And that was, that was his home. One of the things I'm wondering is what, what Todd would do on a normal night when he didn't go home, because it wasn't unusual for him not to spend the night at home. No. So for a number of years, he had been sleeping rough. He would sleep in parks or down at the beach or at his girlfriend's house. He had a girlfriend for the four years before the uh, murder. So he would deliberately choose to not go home. He would avoid his home. Where he couldn't avoid his home, he had his own room, and he would be on his iPad in his room. And, you know, Dr. Thomas said it was not unusual in the milieu of that house for somebody to be at home and not know if anyone else was at home. So it's a very isolated, emotional environment. On the night of Eurydice Dixon's murder, Todd almost does go home, but then he chooses not to and he gets off a few stops outside the city. What does he do next? So he buys some tobacco and he hops on a train back to Flinders Street Station. Turns around. Yeah. And it's interesting because you, you never know what's in anybody's head. Was he intending to go home? Did he change his mind? Was this his plan the whole time to get back to the city alone? Who knows? But, you know, about a half an hour later, he finds himself back basically where he started the evening, you know, with the exception that he's now in the city alone. He eats at McDonald's comes back to the intersection of Flinders and Swanston. He's hanging outside of Young and Jackson's, kind of on the opposite side of Flinders Street Station. And that's where he sees uh, Eurydice Dixon for the first time. She was crossing the street with the station behind her, having just said goodnight to her boyfriend, Tony Magnuson, when his tram arrived to take him kind of south side. And when she's halfway across the intersection, that's when you see Todd turn and start to follow behind her. We'll be right back. Need a reminder of what political leadership looks like? Australia's master of political satire, Jonathan Biggins, is back embodying the iconic Paul Keating, visionary, reformer and rabble-rouser. 
Due to overwhelming demand, one-man comedy The Gospel According to Paul is returning to the Opera House, on from the 4th to 23rd of June for its final term ever. Secure your tickets now at sydneyoperahouse.com for an unforgettable evening. For longtime editor Winnie Dunn, there were a few rules she followed when writing her debut novel. I really don't subscribe to writing for the sake of, you know, trauma dumping or getting your trauma out. That's what a therapist is for, please. <laughs> please go see a therapist. We're very pro-therapy on yeah, this. If that's, no. if that's what you're using writing for. I'm Michael Williams, and on this week's very therapeutic episode of Read This, I chat with Winnie Dunn. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Sarah, can you tell me a little bit about Eurydice Dixon? Eurydice Dixon was a 22-year-old comedian. She was a writer and an artist, and she had played a gig that night. Inevitably, the story is about Eurydice Dixon, but in many ways, it's, it's not her story. So outside the court, when the sentence was complete, her father, Jeremy Dixon, said something that I found very important and very moving, which was that Eurydice should be remembered as her friends will remember her for her wit, her courage, and her kindness, not for her death. So inevitably, when we talk about James Todd, it will raise the name Eurydice Dixon. But her story is much larger than this, and it is not the story of her death. And it is certainly not the story of her murderer. Sarah, at this point on that night, it's about 11pm, Eurydice is in the Melbourne CBD. She's just said goodbye to her partner. And she's now being followed by James Todd. It's quite chilling. He keeps a constant distance of um, about 15 to 20 seconds behind her. When she stops, he stops. Uh, He'll roll a cigarette. So he has some kind of excuse for, you know, being there. And is this all reconstructed from CCTV? Yes. So he follows her for just under an hour through the city. And there's CCTV footage of most of that. And it ends just outside of Melbourne Uni. So you can see him following at a constant distance behind her, beginning around Flinders Street, crossing the map of Melbourne, and ending in Parkville. So... Eventually, just before midnight, after that CCTV footage at Melbourne Uni is kind of the last recorded visual of them both, they reach Princess Park, which is kind of on the boundary of the city and what becomes the inner suburbs. What happens then? Eurydice Dixon loved Princess Park. It was very special to her, and she, in certain ways, you know, kept it very holy, thought it was a safe spot. We heard that she loved to take her shoes off and walk over the grass in bare feet. So it's midnight. She's just at the edge of Princess Park. The park is three soccer pitches wide where she entered it. She texts her boyfriend, Tony Magnuson, saying, I'm nearly home. How about you? Uh, He was asleep then and didn't get the message. It was on Facebook Messenger. And she's nearly home. She's very close to her house. So she walks over the first and the second. Todd is trailing her in the dark. He's waiting until she is very embedded into the park and isolated in that way. And then when she steps onto the third soccer pitch is when he attacks her. So he knocks her to the ground, and that's when he he sits on her chest. He chokes her. He rapes her. He crushes her windpipe, and then he takes her phone and he leaves. And where does he go after that? This is part of what I'm referring to when I call it just a normal day for him. He doesn't go home, but that's not unusual. 
So he walks north for about an hour, um, and he comes to Royal Park Station, where he goes to sleep on the platform for about an hour. And then he wakes up. He uses her phone as a mirror to inspect the defensive injuries that she left on his face and his neck, his shoulders. He browses through her phone, and then he kind of walks back the way he came, including going back to Princess Park, by which point he's moved on by the police, who have established a crime scene there. Her body was found at 2.50 by um, a man walking home from work. And Todd takes a tram back into the city. He buys a coffee and a pie at 7-Eleven, eats and drinks, and then he catches a train and a bus back to his house. So he's home by early the next morning? Yeah, about 6, 6.30. And what does he do when he gets home to Broadmeadows? So the first thing he does is he searches on his iPad for Princess Park, and he reads a couple of articles about the discovery of a woman's body in the park. And then he starts doing searches for rape and murder porn. And he spends the next couple of hours viewing those videos. He looks for search terms, strangled and brutally raped. He looks at those videos that come up in that search. He does a search for brunette-specific videos. He does another search for curvy emo girls. And he's in his room viewing this for the next few hours. He had an obsession with this sort of porn. It had been growing over the last few years. And so it was very normal for him to be in his room alone, spending increasing amount of time looking at increasingly violent pornography. So what happens for the rest of, of that day? Around 6.30 that evening, a friend calls to say that his face is all over the news. And uh, that friend says that he should call the police or else the friend will. And so... This is when Todd Googles Broadmeadows police station number, finds it. He calls the station. He says it's his face on the news, but he doesn't know about any death. He wasn't involved in any death. So he gets a lift to the station um, from his girlfriend and her mother. And in the car, the mother suggests that he should tell his own mother what's going on. His own mother meets him at the station, and then he goes into questioning. And what happens with the police? Todd tells them three different versions of the story. And he maintains his denial over 660 questions. And then the detective explains what's going to happen next, and that is the forensic process. So how it will include a comparison of his DNA samples to samples found at the crime scene. And it's at that point that Todd says, oh, don't worry about the DNA. I did it. I'll tell you everything. Tomorrow, this story concludes with the legal argument that preceded James Todd's sentencing. Join Richard Tognetti and the ACO for a bold and intrepid 2022. Featuring a live national concert season, their acclaimed on-demand film series ACO Studio Casts and exciting programs from their new home in Sydney's Walsh Bay. Subscriptions now on sale at aco.com.au. Sydney Dance Company explodes on stage with Momenta. This world premiere by acclaimed choreographer Raphael Bonicella is unmissable contemporary dance. Strictly limited season from the 28th of May to the 8th of June. Book now at sydneydancecompany.com. 
Elsewhere in the news, in the US, Senator Lindsey Graham, who helped lead the impeachment of Bill Clinton, is expected to take a key role in defending Donald Trump against impeachment. Trump is accused of pressuring the president of Ukraine to dig up dirt on Democratic rival Joe Biden. Graham is expected to attack the whistleblower who made the accusations as biased and to dismiss the report of the president's actions as hearsay. And in sport, Richmond has won the AFL Grand Final, beating Greater Western Sydney 114-25. to It's the club's 12th flag. This is 7am. I'm Elizabeth Coolass. See you Tuesday. <laughs>